Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm John Weber, the Division Delegate for Communications, Publications, and Outreach of the ABA's Law Student Division, and I'm a 3L at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law in Kentucky. I'm joined today with my co-host, Caitlin Peterson from Washington and Lee University, and she is in her second year. Our show today is sponsored by the American Bar Association Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we cover topics that are of interest to you, law students and recent graduates. We'll be talking about a variety of issues from finals to the bar exam and everything in between. We hope this show will be a trusted resource for all of our listeners. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Betsy West and Julie Cohen, co-directors and producers of the upcoming film, RBG. So welcome to both of you. And Betsy, if you wouldn't mind, start off and tell us a little bit about yourself and the project that you all are about to unveil. Hi, I'm Betsy West, and I am a documentary filmmaker, the director, along with Julie, of this film. And I'm also a professor at Columbia Journalism School. And I'm Julie with Betsy. I'm the director of RBG opening in theaters coming up very soon. So Julie and Betsy, will you tell us a little bit about your own background in film? We know that you have done this for a while. You've won awards. Tell us a little bit about what you did before this project and then why this project? What was the genesis of RBG? Why did you choose her? And uh, Julie, if you don't mind starting us off, please. Sure. So... Betsy and I separately have backgrounds in broadcast television news and uh, as well as documentary filmmaking. I'd say within that, there's some special specialization that I have in legal issues and that Betsy has in the women's rights movement. Each of us had interviewed Justice Ginsburg for previous projects. And as her popularity was you know, mushrooming about three years ago, we had the thought someone ought to make a documentary about Justice Ginsburg. And how about having it be us? Yeah. So along those lines, and I really enjoyed watching this documentary, there are a couple of different scenes that you guys focus on that I was curious to talk about. So one of the things that I was really interested in is music choices. For a documentary that's about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she's somewhat of an older justice, she's in her 80s, I thought it was pretty interesting that you guys use modern music. Uh, Why did you guys make this choice as the producers of this documentary to include modern music in the documentary? Well, we used a variety of music in the documentary. Justice Ginsburg is a great lover of opera, so there's a fair amount of opera and also classical music, which is how we start off the documentary. But she also has attracted a whole generation of millennial fans, and we thought that it was appropriate to use more modern music as well. So, you know, we tried to mix it up and to use music that we thought was appropriate to the areas that we were discussing. Indeed, and I think it was a great mix. My other question is then, so you guys, towards the end of the documentary, you focus on Ruth Bader Ginsburg popularity with kind of the millennial generation. 
And so I know at my law school, she had come to speak at Washington and Lee in the VMI last year. It was a very popular, well-attended event by millennials. What do you guys think is attributable to Ruth Bader Ginsburg kind of notorious status of being so popular among millennials? Uh, yes. Well, we were actually, as you saw in the film, we were at that event at Washington and Lee and BMI when Justice Ginsburg was speaking to a capacity crowd there. Everywhere we went, she was a rock star. And I think I'd attribute it to a combination of things. The unexpectedness of this very small, soft-spoken, 85-year-old woman making some really loud, strong dissents, and also a certain clarity to the way she writes. Justice Ginsburg goes out of her way when she's writing an opinion or a dissent to make it understandable for a non-legal audience so that people will get a sense of what the court is doing. And some of her writing has really spoken to people, particularly the sense that she's writing, giving voice to things that a lot of liberals are, are feeling. And she's written in a very powerful way that really connects. No other justice is quite like her. There's certainly no notorious John Roberts or any of the others. I'm curious about what made this project unique from the the things that you have worked on in the past. I noticed, uh, just as an example, your interviews are star-studded. You got to speak with some really interesting people. And so I was just wondering if you could let us and our audience peek behind the scenes a little bit about what that was like, and again, maybe why this project was different than some of your previous work. Justice Ginsburg has an amazing history as not only her current role as a Supreme Court justice in issuing the opinions that have really garnered her fans as notorious RBG, but she also has a history as the architect of the women's rights movement and for arguing a series of cases herself as a young lawyer before the Supreme Court, which really changed the law for American women. There are a number of prominent people who understand that role and played a role in her life over the years who were extremely happy to talk about her. So Gloria Steinem calls her the closest thing to a superhero that I know, because Gloria Steinem understands that she was the public face of the women's rights movement in the late 60s and the early 70s. But at the same time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as a young lawyer, was crafting a legal strategy to overturn hundreds, if not thousands, of laws that were on the books across the country that discriminated on the basis of gender. So she was more than happy to talk to us. And similarly, I think that Bill Clinton was very happy, is happy that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is part of his legacy as president for having appointed her. So frankly, um, it wasn't hard to get people to talk about her because so many people admire her. And once she'd agreed to participate in the film, then um, doors were opened. I agree. And it was so nice to see so many people talking about her and her accomplishments even before she was a justice. I had grow up learning about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I hadn't heard quite all that she had done for that. So it was enlightening to hear about that. And I appreciated it as well. What I appreciated hearing about was her friendship with the recently passed Justice Anton Scalia. And I know when she spoke at Washington and Lee, she was very passionate about that issue and very compassionate about that issue. So would you care to share with our audience now kind of what 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg feels about Justice Scalia and their relationship kind of as allies on different sides of the political spectrum, as it's pointed out in the documentary. Absolutely. Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia were very close friends going back to the days when they both served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit starting in the early 80s. They formed a friendship there, and it maintained all the way until Justice Scalia's death in 2016. They would point out that there are many areas of the law, even most areas of law, which they very strongly agreed on. Both have a passion for civil procedure and had similar views on civil procedure. It's really only some of the hot-button ideological issues that get the most news coverage on which they disagreed and disagreed passionately. Each of them argued that the point of view of the other really sharpened their own opinion. They would share in advance sort of preview copies of what one or the other was going to say in a dissent and give the other time to respond. So they felt like each one made the other's thinking stronger. A really nice example in this time where you think of having different partisan views as something that might get in the way of a friendship. In their case, I think they might argue in some ways it made their friendship stronger, even if it led to some moments of really sharp disagreement on paper. One of the things that I think our audience is going to wander throughout this interview and as they watch and learn more about RBG is how long she's going to stay on the bench. That's one of the bigger questions in political and legal circles coming up. I'm just wondering, did you notice anything that might help you to answer that question? Yeah, this is Betsy. I can tell you that this is a question that many people have. We experienced a very vibrant, strong woman who has extraordinary stamina, even for someone a lot younger than 85 years old. I mean, we were following her around the country. She keeps a very busy schedule. So uh, in, in one instance, we filmed her in Chicago and actually at a Justice Scalia memorial and another event. And then we were going to Washington to do another filming two days later and then discovered that she'd stopped off in Indiana for another event. We had heard about her workout and frankly, we're a little skeptical that she was doing the push-ups and the planks. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to film her. And just to see for ourselves, the minute we got into the gym and saw the determination with which she approached her workout routine, it was very impressive. She is determined to keep herself in good shape. She has said repeatedly that she'll do the job as long as she feels she is capable of doing it. Certainly, she still has a steel trap memory. She remembers the names of clients, the names of cases from decades and decades ago. She corrected us at one point when, you know, we quoted an argument that she had made and changed a few words around. No, no, it, I said exactly this. She is sharp and she believes that she should stay on the court for as long as she's capable of doing the work. And if I may follow up on that, she has called out partisanship on the court in Bush versus Gore. 
she has also called out President Trump, which some people caused some people to bristle because the Supreme Court is supposed to be insulated from that type of politics in their criticism. Then Trump, of course, uh, tweets and says that she embarrassed herself and called on her to resign. I wonder, with those two ends of the spectrum, how do you think that she sees herself in today's political environment? And does that influence her thoughts on retiring? I think she sees herself, you know, first and foremost, I think she is very committed to collegiality between parties and to nonpartisanship. The remarks that she made about then-candidate Donald Trump, one might speculate that she made them not thinking forward to the possibility of him being elected president. She apologized and kind of took back her remarks a few days later, realizing, and as she says in our film, the best answer would have been just to say nothing. I think she does understand though, that her opinions and more importantly these days, her dissents are being read and really focused on by a segment of the population who's wanting to hear what the counter argument is to some of the prevailing judgments that the court is making. So she does, in fact, see how people are viewing what she's writing. She makes her best attempts to remain above the fray and to the extent where she falls short on that, she turned around and apologized for those remarks. She's human, and I think that's why a lot of millennials look up to her. She makes mistakes, but then she is willing to apologize for them and kind of move on to continue to be a consummate professional. Where I would like to turn the discussion now to is some of the cases that were discussed inside of this documentary. There were a couple even that I was surprised by, such as the Weinberger v. Weisenfield decision that she helped pretty much get a great ruling on that it was discrimination for male widowers to not be able to receive Social Security benefits from their spouse when they want to take care of their children. So can we kind of talk about that case and what talking to Ruth Bader Ginsburg about the Weinberger case was like? Yeah, this is Betsy. That case is a great example of Justice Ginsburg's strategic approach to tackling gender equality. When she heard about the story of Stephen Weisenfeld, a widower whose wife had died in childbirth, who applied for Social Security benefits to take care of his infant son and was denied those benefits because they were supposedly for a mother's benefit, not a father's, she heard about that case and realized that it was the perfect example of how discriminatory laws hurt both men and women. And she probably understood as well that she'd have a very sympathetic client in Stephen Weisenfeld uh, with the male justices who would be sitting there and just imagining themselves in his place and asking, well, why shouldn't he get these benefits? So it was that case was key to making an uh, important inroad in having the 14th Amendment cover women as well as men. And yet she used a, a male client as the example. One of my favorite dissents that she has written is in Shelby County v. Holder, where she says it's like throwing away an umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. I think that's something that 
everyone can understand whether you've sat through a single law school class or it's your first opinion that you have ever seen. I think that she has a way of seeing things and understanding the way that they are rather than living in an ivory tower and and becoming so insulated from the real world while sitting on the court. The Lily Ledbetter case is similar. She says the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious way in which women can be victims of pay discrimination. There are numerous examples of her trying to tell the court, you're missing the mark because you don't exactly understand how it happens in reality, or at least that's the way I interpret it. Just wondered if you could comment on that perspective that she brings to the court and when she pins a dissent. I think you're absolutely right. Justice Ginsburg has been for quite some time, both an academic and then followed by being a judge and a justice. And yet she always grounds her opinions and dissents in the real world, in the real people who are going to be impacted by the court's decision and about how things actually play out in reality, which, as you know, gets a little hard in the legal world where you can sort of head up into esoterica if you want. And Those two cases are really good examples of Justice Ginsburg writing dissents where she's trying to kind of bring things back to reality and also express them in such a way that readers, even if they're not lawyers, are kind of going to get it. Uh, Yeah, the Voting Rights Act, you know, has made big changes in fairness and access to the ballots in many states. But that's not a reason to take away protection of the Voting Rights Act, she argued, like, you know, and coming up with that umbrella analogy was so perfect and so understandable and so poetic that it really struck a chord. So that's kind of her specialty, I think, particularly in writing dissents and has a lot to do with why she's become sort of like the people's justice as far as, you know, from the left anyway, because she's expressing things in a way that people are hearing and people are getting and enjoying spreading the word. Definitely. I agree that she is known as kind of the notorious person that she is for her great descent in this modern time. But I think it'd be kind of criminal for me not to talk about her great majority opinion in United States v. Virginia, which I remember when she came to the Virginia Military Institute and many of us at Washington Lee University also were at that event to watch her, hearing her speak about that and then looking into the audience to see so many female cadets was really a monumental moment for all of us to realize how her decision then had made such an impact. And yet still people, as it is pointed out in the documentary, don't quite agree with her impact that has had on the Virginia Military Institute, even still today. So kind of what was her thoughts on making the United States v. Virginia majority decision? And how has she seen that impact that it's made on the Virginia Military Institute and other institutions? How does she feel about that? This is Betsy. I think it was very moving for Justice Ginsburg to go to VMI. It was the first time that she'd been there since she wrote that majority opinion, which was really the culmination of a lot of the work that she did as a litigator in the 1970s, ruling that women, if they were capable of doing the work required of them at VMI, should be given the opportunity to apply and attend. She made a point to meet with a number of the female cadets currently 
there at BMI, and she has a picture of herself with those cadets in the chamber, the outer chamber of her office, and she's very proud of it. She talks about how they are going on to be engineers and to have wonderful careers because of the opportunity that they had at BMI to be trained the way men were getting trained. So she's quite proud of it. Many people predicted that uh, the ruling would ruin VMI, and I think she's quite proud of the fact that the ruling has actually enhanced VMI, and it hasn't meant the death of the institution, and it seems to be going as strong, if not stronger than ever. In our last couple of minutes, I feel like we cannot forget to tie some of what she's written in her descents to her own personal life, again, like we have before. But even before that, some 20 plus years before sitting on the court, she was instrumental in striking down a law that said males must be preferred. It's surprising to me and likely many current law students to think that our parents' generation grew up at a time when that was the law. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about her experience in law school as one of very few women and then her struggles getting a job even though she's clearly quite qualified. Yes. Well, you know, that's one of the things we really wanted to bring out in this film. Particularly, you know, we understand that a big audience for RBG, both the person and the movie, is the millennials who view her as a big star. And we also know people don't really understand what she accomplished and the context of where she was coming from, you know, what the world was even just a few decades ago. When Justice Ginsburg went to law school, it was unusual for a woman to go to law school at all in the 1950s. She was one of nine women in a class of 500 at Harvard. And as she recounts in the film, the dean invited the nine women, you know, in her class to have a dinner with him at the beginning of the year. And asked them why they were taking a place, you know, a seat that could be held by a man. Now, he then basically, his argument was that he was helping them sharpen their arguing skills. But like, you know, whatever your motivations, like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty harsh, I don't know, I don't want to be too, too harsh. That's a, that's a pretty offensive question by today's, uh, by today's standards, certainly. Then, you know, she goes to Harvard Law School. She also she ended up graduating from Columbia Law School because she moved there with us. She moved to New York with her husband, ties for first in her class, goes out looking for jobs at the top New York law firms who, as it turned out, were basically just not hiring women. They might hire you as a secretary, but, you know, very few female associates were being hired. And she ran up against some firms saying, oh, you know what, we hired a woman a few years ago, didn't really work out so well, so we're sort of over that. You know, the interesting thing about progress in the world, and obviously there's been great progress on gender issues in the decades since then, is that sometimes when things move quickly, people kind of forget and don't realize what it was like recently. I mean, we've, we've actually had some situations with fact checkers writing stories about our film who've said like, oh, you can't mean that she couldn't get a job in a law firm. You just mean her pay was she was offered less pay, right? And we're like, no, we're saying they didn't want to hire women at all. The world in many ways, certainly on inclusion issues, has improved greatly, but the thing we want our viewers to understand is it's improved because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the, and the work that she did. 
Betsy West, Julie Cohen, thank you all so much for joining us today. Just want to wrap it up by asking you how people can get in touch with you if they have questions, and also when and where will our audience be able to watch your film? Yes, RPG is opening in theaters around the country starting May 4th, and at this point there are over 200 theaters where it will be playing all around the country in the month of May and maybe beyond. So we hope that uh, everybody will go and see what we think will be a surprising and we hope uh, informative and entertaining story. Excellent. We want to thank again Betsy West and Julie Cohen, co-directors and producers of RBG, for joining us on this podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode. We would like to encourage you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts and to take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also reach out on Twitter at ABALSD using the hashtag LawStudentPodcast. We want to hear what's on your mind. I'm John Weber with Caitlin Peterson, and we want to thank you for listening to the ABA Law Student Podcast. Stay tuned. Connect with us. Let us know what you're doing to make a difference on your campus and in your community. Until next time, podcasters. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.